0: Welcome to Faith Point, the podcast ministry of First Southern Baptist Church of Prescott Valley, with Senior Pastor Terrell Eldreth. Our goal is to allow our faith to intersect with real life. So let's join Pastor Terrell today as he shares with us from God's Word. Take out your sermon notes, if you would, and uh, open your Bibles. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 again today. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And uh, Barbara and I would like to thank all of you who were able to to celebrate last week with us for our anniversary. Uh, We had a great time. Hope you enjoyed it as well. And, And someday we might do it again when we hit another 50. I'm not sure. But we were only two years old when we got married. But nobody wants to believe that. I don't know why. But anyway, uh, let's bow in prayers to come to God's Word. Father, as we open your Word this morning, we pray that, um, that we would be drawn into it, that you would speak to our hearts, to those areas maybe where we're struggling right now. And Father, we pray that we would find hope, that we find peace, that we would find joy uh, in your Word. Uh, thank you that it speaks to our lives every day. And now we pray that Jesus would be shown through your word, and glorified by it right now. For we pray these things in his most precious name. Amen. Uh, We're going to continue. We're continuing the series um, that I'm doing with you, Good News for the Not So Good, because that describes just about everybody I know, including all of us. Uh, and we need that good news. And then on top of that, uh, we are talking today about um, big-picture discipleship. So, so God wants to speak to us uh, good news, and then he also wants to speak to us about discipleship, about how we follow Jesus Christ um, more and more. Remember our John 8.32, um, 8.31 says, If you follow me, If you are my disciple, you will know the truth in verse 32. And we don't know the truth if we don't follow Jesus and so John or rather Paul knows that and he's speaking to us about that and so as we continue looking again at chapter 7 looking at the second half of chapter 7 today I want to briefly kind of just overview this chapter so for those of us who were not here last week or don't remember being here last week and don't remember what we talked about um We'll, we'll kind of put it into context and then we'll get into this half. But looking at an overview, uh, we've, we've seen in, in recent messages and then coming into last week that Paul was discussing appropriate boundaries and inappropriate boundaries uh, in the area of, of sexual relationships for Christians. And then in chapter 5 and 6, he addresses some of the top um, behavior um, bad behavior, I should say, bad behavior issues that can arise, and then, in chapter seven, he gives us this, some very practical guidelines for those who are married, widowed, single, single, and engaged. so last week we looked at at really big picture Guidelines for marriage and relationships. And today we're still talking about big picture things. He's still giving us those big picture decisions we need to make. Uh, And this time it is about discipleship. And he says that, that in terms of married couples... They are to look after one another's needs. They are to be one um, and not to deprive one another. Then to unmarried and to those widows, he says, it would be better to remain single just as he was and then, um, and then he says, and if you are married, don't, don't consider divorce. Stay in that same situation that you are. Stay in that marriage and find a way to make it work. Remember, he said, there's going to be some hard stuff here and you've got to find a way to make that work. And if your spouse is an unbeliever, that doesn't, um, that doesn't mean you should end that relationship. Uh, he says, if you're a believer and your spouse is an unbeliever, you stay in that relationship. And the only way that that ends is if that unbelieving spouse walks away from the marriage. Um, Because in the midst of that, you might be able to lead your spouse um, to a a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and the same thing for your children. So you stay in that relationship. And then in the remaining verses of the chapter, he talks about whether or not uh, people should marry at all. And you say, well, I already did that, so why do I need to listen to this part? You well, know, because not everybody is married. And so, um, and sometimes our situations change. It says, it's better not to marry at all. And he leads toward... Uh, that recommendation, if possible it 's better not to marry. he says, um, and those who are married, he says, have worries and problems that come along uh, with life because of that and and it's and and those who are unmarried can give their undivided attention to serving Jesus Christ in a in a way that a married person cannot do and and so he says. Um, just stay unmarried but he said if that's not possible then go ahead and get married uh and and it's not a sin if you do so he's not saying if you marry you're sinning he just says it's, the better it is to not get married But his recommendation to believers is to stay single if they can. And then he finishes chapter 7 with this phrase, which is kind of an interesting phrase. He says in verse 40, and I think I'm giving you counsel from God's spirit when I say this. There are those who believe that the word of God, the Bible, just fell out of heaven under a rock. And that it was found that way on golden tablets or something else. And so whether we believe that or not, most people seem to think that God just simply sent down his word and it was all complete. And all they had to do, all the, all these early disciples had to do was put a cover on it, put Holy Bible on the front, and say, there you go, this is God's word. That's not how we got God's word. We got, word, got God's word given to men... Who, who God was speaking to through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was leading them and guiding them over a period of about 2,500 years, over a period of about, over a, a section of the world of about 2,500 miles. And so many of these writers never lived in the same time frame. They never knew each other. Uh, and even the ones that did know each other weren't very close together very often. So they weren't sitting down saying, let's write a Bible. They simply wrote what God laid on their heart to share with believers, especially in the New Testament. And so many of them are letters uh, to, to other churches. And, and then over a period of time, Christians got together and they said, which ones seem to us to be the ones that these things that God wants to put in Scripture?" And so they canonized that. And it wasn't until about 400 AD that the New Testament was, was canonized, where the 27 books that we have in the New Testament are the New Testament. And so these men who are writing, uh, God wasn't sitting face-to-face with them in a room saying, here, write this. They simply were listening to the Holy Spirit. And so when Paul says, I'm, I'm pretty sure that this is the counsel from God's Spirit when I say this, he's just being very honest with us. He's saying, I don't hear an audible voice. I don't see God. I don't see Jesus. I'm here in a jail cell or I'm wherever I'm at. And I'm, and I'm trying to listen to the Holy Spirit. And I think, this is what the Holy Spirit is telling me to be so. So don't think he's just guessing at it. He's listening to the Holy Spirit. But it's the same way that we got all of Scripture. It all came that way. The only thing that we didn't have that came that way are the Ten Commandments. And God wrote them. And as soon as God wrote them and Moses came down, people were already breaking every one of them, and and he broke the the two tablets. And God said, I didn't tell you to do that, so he came back up and he gave them to him again and came back again. And then we don't even have those two tablets anymore. But beyond that, that's not how we got God's word. So don't fret over that phrase. When you get to the end of the chapter, don't say, well, why did I read the chapter then if he's not sure? He was as sure about this as he was anything else that he wrote. he believed God was speaking to him. so when we look at all of that in chapter five, six, and seven, particularly in chapter seven, there's three questions that that really probably come to mind for all of us or should come to mind as we as we look at at especially the second half of this of this chapter, starting at verse seventeen and the first question would be what exactly was?" Paul's relationship status because he's talking about I want you to be as I am. So what what was his I am? What was his relationship status? Was he married? Was he was he was he single? Was he divorced? Was he widowed? Um because in nowhere does he actually ever come out and say what his status is. He just says I'm single. That's the closest thing we know, but we don't know why. So so what was his relationship? He says in verse 7 he says but I wish everyone were single just as I am. And then the next verse, verse 80, says, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. So we know he's single, and we know that he's unmarried, and it pretty much sounds like he doesn't plan to get married. So, so we look at that, and we say, okay, um, then does that mean he was a lifelong bachelor? So is this lifelong bachelor giving us marriage Counseling which is possible. I mean, that's, there no, no, nothing in the Bible says that a bachelor can't give marriage advice. Um, but it seems not likely that that's the case for a couple of reasons. The first reason is is that he was a rabbi. Remember, he was a Jew of the Jews. And he was a rabbi, and that was his early life. And he was a very good rabbi. He was a very intelligent rabbi. Most biblical scholars think that had he not become a Christian, had he continued to persecute the church and try to kill Christians, he probably would have been the chief priest uh, in his lifetime. But, but he got saved and they didn't let Christians be the chief priest anymore. So that wasn't a job option for him. And so rabbis were expected to be married, typically. So if he's a rabbi, it would be expected that he would be married. But not only was he a rabbi, he was also a part of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin were the kind of the ruling class, if you will, of the Jews. They're the ones who chased after Jesus and finally, uh, finally figured out a way to get him to the cross and to kill him and as part of the Sanhedrin, it was not just expected that you to be married, it was required that you be married. So the fact that he was expected to be married as a rabbi and required to be married as a member of the Sanhedrin would tell us that at some point he was married. So if that's the case, then, then we have another question. Did Paul have a low opinion of marriage? No, he didn't. He didn't have a low opinion of it. Last week, we talked about that. That at first glance, uh, he reduces, uh, near. it seems like he's reducing marriage merely to a physical relationship, but that's because that, that, um, that physical relationship uh, was the topic at hand of what he was writing about in the first half, especially, of this chapter. And he's addressing sexual conduct among those who are married and those who aren't. Uh, but then uh, he says in Ephesians, he said, remember he says that marriage is likened to a relationship of a Christian to, to Jesus Christ, the relationship we have with him because we are the bride of Christ. And, um, and so we have a man who probably was married, and I should say that, that if he was married, then that would mean at this point, either that since he's single, either that his mar- his, he was a widower now, that his, his wife had passed away when he, by the time he writes this, or that he's divorced. It's very, and it would seem very likely that he was not the one who would have divorced his wife based on what he's saying in this chapter. That maybe his wife left him. You've got to remember that if he was married, he was married to a Jewish woman who maybe wasn't as thrilled about his being a Christian as he was, who wasn't as thrilled about his going around all over the known world um, preaching the gospel and getting stoned and to death and, and, and being thrown into prisons as he was, and maybe she just divorced him. But whichever those two it is, uh, we don't know because he never said, just that he's single by the time he gets to this point in his life. And then the third question, if, if Paul wasn't anti-marriage, um, why did he encourage people not to marry? Uh, we, get a, we get a hint of that in verse 26 here in chapter 7. There's a clue. He says, because of the present crisis, I think it's best to remain as you are. That word present, you might wanna underline that word in your Bible uh, or in your notes. The word present can also be uh, translated into English impending. So it's, he says there's this present impending, if you will, crisis. And so I think Paul was primarily looking at his day. I think he understood that because of what Scripture had said already, because of what Jesus said, that if Jesus didn't come very quickly, if the rapture did not happen very soon, then it was gonna be very dangerous to be a Christian. And that's exactly what played out over the next few centuries. Things got worse and worse and worse for Christians. Nero came to the throne in Rome. Nero was wacko. Nero was most likely demon-possessed. Nero used to take Christians and he would, he would have them dipped in tar and oil then then crucified and then he would line them on the streets of Rome and at night they would light them on fire and that was his lights, and he would race up and down in his chariot with no clothes on just screaming like a banshee among all these Christians who were being burned if you will at the stake. That was not a place necessarily to be raising kids if you were a Christian. That was not a recipe for long marriages. Paul understood the kinds of things that Christians were going to do. I think God had probably given him some revelation on that. And he said, You know what? Right now, if you're if you're if you're going to be married, you're going to have a lot more on your plate than you can imagine. Because you're going to to protect your spouse. You're going to want to protect your kids, and you're not going to be able to do that. It just isn't going to happen. And so Paul says, you know, because of the present crisis, this impending issue that's coming up, he said, probably better not to get married if you want to serve Jesus Christ. Because in verse 28 he says, those who get married at this time will have troubles, and I'm trying to spare you those problems. Doesn't say I hated marriage. He wasn't saying that he was anti-marriage. He just knew the problems that would come because you're married in that time frame. And and there's still today, there are those places in the world where if you're married, you're still going to have those kinds of issues. That if you're married, you're still going to have problems. And so it's always going to be an, an issue of of how your time is going to be spent and what's going to happen. But even to believers living in troubled times in the first century, Paul makes it at that point to say, but if you do get married, it's not a sin. It's not a sin. So he isn't anti-marriage. He's just taking a practical approach to marriage as a believer and, and he's, he says, how do you manage a marriage in troubled times? And that's what we look at. And so he begins to share now in the second half of chapter 7 some big picture guidelines now for marriage, for marriage relationships. He says, these are the things that you need to be watching for. These are the things that you need to be practicing and he says they are about your discipleship it is now not just about how you are a husband or a wife or a mom or a dad it's not about whether you are whether you are engaged or whether you're choosing to stay single whatever it may be they said whatever situation you're in There has to be discipleship. We're called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We're still called to follow him no matter what's going on in culture, no matter what's going on in our lives. We're all called to follow Jesus Christ if we are Christians. And that has to be our first commitment. It can't be anything else. For Barb and I, for me, my priorities are very specific, and yours need to be as well. My priority number one is Jesus Christ. My priority number two, then, is Barbara, my wife. Priority number three are our children. And priority number four is the church. That's how it has to be for all of us. You don't have to be the pastor for that to be true. It should be that if you're married, that's the order of your priorities. Your spouse, your children... Are Jesus rather your spouse, your children, and the church? If you get that out of whack, you're in trouble. Because Satan says, you know what? Your spouse is number one. Your children should be number two. But the church, not so important. Not so important. And you try to live your life that way, and you see how it goes. You try to live that way, and your marriage falls apart. You try to live that way, and your children fall apart. It has to be in that order. Jesus Christ has to be number one. So Paul, in all of this talking about marriage, he says, Now let remind you that you are, first of all, a disciple of Jesus Christ, and he has to be your first priority. And so he says, I'm going to give you, just like I gave you, some big picture guidelines last week for your marriage. Now I want to give you some big picture guidelines that still apply to your marriage, but mostly apply to discipleship, whether you're married or single. These are things that you need to be looking at. And when you get these right, they help you at each bend of the road of your life. And so let's look together at these three these three big-picture discipleship um, issues that he talks about. Number one, he says, as much as possible, keep your situation in life the same, at least for now. As much as you can, keep and you become a Christian, keep your life the same, your situation the same, as much as you can, at least for now. Look at verse 17. He says, each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when God first called you. This is my rule for all the churches. Then he goes on to say in verse 18, for instance, a man who was circumcised before he became a believer should not try to reverse it. And a man who was uncircumcised when he became a believer should not be circumcised now. Now, why would Paul say that? Seems like a ridiculous thing to say, and it just kind of comes out of nowhere. But why would he say that? Because he's saying you're in a situation, every one of you, when you trusted Jesus Christ to be your Savior, and even right today, you have particular situations. You're in particular kind of, of the situations in your life in your age, in your, in your financial areas, your jobs, or your retirement, whatever it may be, we all have a little bit of idiosyncrasies in there. And he said, just stay there for right now, at least. If you were a man in Paul's day, and you were, and you were a Gentile, When you got saved, and many of the people that Paul is writing to are Gentiles now. That means they're not Jewish. There's only two kinds of people in the Jewish mind in the world. There are Jews, and there's everybody else. There are Jews, and there are Gentiles. So it doesn't matter what nationality you are. You're either Jewish or you're not. And if you're Jewish, and you were a man, that means that you were circumcised when you were a baby. And so if you were a Gentile now and you hear Paul preaching and you get saved, there were those in the church who would come along and they would say, well, you're not really saved just yet because Jesus was Jewish. And the first church was made up of all Jews. And so you need to be circumcised in order to really be saved. And Paul said, baloney, don't do that. And then on the other hand, there were those who were Jewish, who were circumcised, but they're living in a Gentile world because he's writing to people in Corinth. Corinth is in modern-day Greece. That's a long ways away from, Jew, from Israel. It's a long swim to get over there. And so they, they're saying, okay, I'm a businessman, And most of my customers are Gentiles. So maybe I should be circumcised so that the Jews will, uh, so that the Gentiles will, let me get this right. So maybe I should be circumcised so that the the Gentiles, maybe I get it right, the Jews or or the businessmen, they said, hey, I need to do business. Maybe I had to get uncircumcised somehow. I don't know how they thought they were going to do that. But they did. Now remember that in, in that world, a lot of the business was done in, in, um, was done in bathhouses and, and, and tea rooms and things like that. And so, so they would say, you know, I'm not going to fit in if I'm circumcised and they're not going to do business with me. Paul said, whatever, circum- whatever your circumstance was when you, get, when, you, when you get saved, just stay in that situation at least for now you don't have to change anything because that's not going to fix how whether you're saved or not he says in verse 19 for it makes no difference whether or not a man has been circumcised the important thing is to keep God's commands and so he said he said just follow what Jesus says just do what Jesus is telling you to do do it what the what Scripture is telling you to do, live that way. And Paul, who is this former Pharisee, wants to make it clear that, that it's not how we define spirituality what you do in terms of circumcision or whether you follow all the Jewish laws or not. That's not... The, the test of whether you're saved or how you're going to live. That's not your spirituality. Uh, it's your devotion to Jesus Christ that matters. And so he says, the big picture is, how do you follow Jesus? Do you keep him number one on your priority list? If you don't, get that straight. And if that's straight, don't worry about those things underneath because they don't matter as much. And then he goes on to say that if you were unmarried when you came to Christ, don't seek to get married. And if you're married, don't try to get out of it. Just live for Jesus wherever you are in whatever situation you find yourself. There's a saying it has been around for <clears throat> a long time. Um, bloom where you're, pram- you're planted. You've heard that before, right? And it's such a cliche. It's a shame that is such a valid truth. Because we hear it and we say, oh, big deal. Yeah, it is a big deal. That's because that's exactly what Paul's saying here in chapter 7. He's saying, bloom where you're planted. You need to, you need to just say, I'm, I'm content with where I am in Jesus Christ. I don't need anything else because I have Jesus Christ in my life now and I'm able to move and I'm able to bloom right now. I'm able to make the best of who I am and and where I am And, and so we need to remind ourselves of that and there's really two truths that we need to remind ourselves of. The first one is that you don't have to jump through anyone else's hoop to prove that you're a Christian and to live the Christian life. because. There are churches and there are denominations and there are sects and there are insects out there all over the place that throw up hoops and say, you've got to jump through this hoop or you're not going to be got to jump through this hoop or you are not going to be there you got to jump through this hoop or you are not good you got to jump through this hoop or you can not be a part of us. Paul said, don't jump through anybody else's hoops. You just keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. You love him and you serve him and him alone. And then the other thing you have to remember is that that when you bloom, you're planted, that you have everything that you need. You know, I've heard a lot of people say, you know, who are unmarried, uh, whether they were married before or never married, they'll say, I guess I just need to get married again so I can be a good Christian. And sometimes it's not even that. Sometimes they'll say, you know, I would marry just about anybody right now if I never had to hear someone say to me, so you're still not married? That's jumping through somebody's hoop. Just learn to be content with where you're at right now. When you bloom where you're planted, you also abandon the idea that says, I can't be a good Christian. I can't be a good Christian until I'm married. Or I can't be a good Christian until I'm single. Or I can't be a good Christian until I have money. Or I can't be a good Christian until I live someplace else besides here. Or I can't be a good Christian Until I get better friends. And just on and on and on it goes. And it's all a lie. Because being a Christian has nothing to do with any of those things. And so before you make any dramatic changes in your life, I encourage you to just make this vow, I'll be faithful to God in this situation that I am in right now. No matter what. And if nothing ever changes, I am still going to be faithful to Jesus Christ. I'm going to follow him in discipleship. Second big picture guideline that Paul says we should follow is if you can make your life better, by all means, make it better. If you can make it better, go ahead and make it better. And you say, now wait a minute. Why would Paul say that? He just said, whatever situation I find myself in when I get saved I need to remain in that situation at least for now and then he kind of turns around and he says or at least you just now said Pastor Terrell if you can make your life better go ahead by all means make it better those seem to contradict each other a little bit, don't they? But not really. Got to pay attention um, and stay with me here for just a minute because they don't oppose each other. Um, there's a delicate balance to be maintained between them, though, that we have to pay attention to. When Paul tells us to remain in the situation in which we were, he's not telling us to become complacent, to just say, oh, well, this is my lot in life. I guess... It'll never be any different. He's telling us to be content, and that's different. Content says, I can live here in this situation, and I can still be faithful to God. Complacent says, I'm angry about it, and I just don't want to do anything, and I'm too lazy to try to change anyway, so I'm just going to leave it alone. So he's not telling us to be complacent. He's telling us to be content. He's saying that you need to accept your situation with, with, with the resolution to remain faithful to God. And if it so happens that you can change your situation for the better, then change your situation. Look at what he says in verses 20 and 21. Yes, each of you should remain as you were when God called you. Are you a slave? Don't let that worry you. But if you get a chance to be free... Take it. So I'm saying, you have a chance to, get, to make your life better? Then make it better. Occasionally, slaves would have an opportunity to buy their own freedom, to get out of being a slavery. They had an opportunity to earn their freedom in some manner. And Paul says, if you are a slave and you have that opportunity, then, then and it comes your way, take it. No doubt, it's easier in, in life not to be a slave and you have more opportunities if you're not a slave. So if you're a slave and you can stop being a slave, then go ahead and take that opportunity and make your life better. And so in the same way, Paul says, if you're struggling with being single and you're struggling with remaining pure and, and it's dragging you down and it's wearing you out, then go ahead and get married. Because some people think, man, if I'm single, I'm going to feel like I'm slave to singlehood. And, and, I, and I don't want to have that, that weariness of that. He says, then get married. In verse 9, he says, it's better to marry than to burn with lust. So he said, if you're a slave to that lust, then then get married so that you're not a slave to that any longer. And the idea is not to accept our lot in life and never make an effort to make life better. It's that you can add certain benefit to your life uh, in, or, or, or eliminate certain problems from your life, and it'll help you to be faithful to Jesus Christ and to walk with him, and if you make those necessary changes, And he says, do what works best for everybody, what's what's best for all. So go ahead and make those changes. And here's something interesting. Earlier I mentioned that Paul said in verse 18, and a man who was uncircumcised when he became a believer should not be uncircumcised. Now, and yet in Acts chapter 16, Paul does just the opposite of that, it seems. Paul um, Paul. Is, is with Timothy, uh, and, and is, uh, Timothy's mother is Jewish and his father is Greek. And Paul uh, takes Timothy on his second missionary journey and says, I want you to come along as my helper. And, and so they, 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 they do that. And in Acts chapter 16, verses 3 through 5, this is what we read. In deference to the Jews of the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left. For everyone knew his father was a Greek. And then they went from town to town, instructing the believers to follow the decisions made by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. Together, Paul and Timothy made a strategic decision because they understood that it would give Timothy credibility. It would give him credibility among the Jewish leaders who were the primary members of the churches at that time there in the area of Turkey and Greece. And so he said, we need to make some changes here. And it would help him avoid unnecessary obstacles in ministry. And so Paul could have approached this differently. He could have come in like a bull in a china closet, and he could have had both guns blazing, so to speak, and getting all confrontational, and he could have said, you know and I know if Timothy is uncircumcised, it's not going to change the fact that he's saved and that you ought to listen to him and you ought to pay attention to what God's doing in his life. You just get your act together because Timothy's not changing. He could have said that, but what would have happened? Paul and Timothy would have missed out on a ton of gospel opportunities. They would have missed out on a lot of opportunities for ministry. And Timothy may not have had the chance to become the Christian leader in the overall church that he ultimately did. And the churches they worked with might not have grown at all. Instead, they grew day by day. So they made a strategic choice. Why would he say circumcision is not important and then encouraged Timothy to be circumcised? Because he could see the big picture. He could see what was going to happen in the big picture. He could see which battles were worth fighting and which were not worth fighting. And he said, this one wasn't worth fighting for. His objective was to further the gospel, not to prove himself right on everything. There are some of us who think I have to be right on everything, and you have to know I'm right on everything. Paul said, no, you don't, and no, they don't. Because if you see the big picture of what God's wanting to do, then you can do what's right for everyone so that the gospel will propagate, so that you can be the disciple God has called you to be. So he says, let's do what's best for everyone as much as we can. And then he gives a third big-picture guideline. The third big-picture guideline is this. Maintain a healthy distance from the world around you. We all live in the world. We live in culture. He said, but as much as we can, let's maintain a healthy distance from it. Let's pay attention to what's going on. Jesus said that we are to be in the world. When he died, when he rose again, 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. How many people did he take with him? Zero. Zero. He left every other disciple here on earth. They watched him go into heaven. The 12, well, the, the 11 at that point, they're watching him go into heaven, and other disciples, the other Christians, were watching him go into heaven, and they just stood there watching. Pretty soon they couldn't see him anymore. They kept watching, like, uh, are you going to take us? Did we not get the ticket? I don't know, you know. I thought we would go with you. And what happened? Some angel showed up and said, why are you looking up there? He said, well, Jesus went up there and we wanted to go. Well, they don't think that's what they said, but that's kind of what they were thinking. And the angel said, get your eyes back down here. The same Jesus you saw go up there in the clouds. He's coming back again one day, but that's not what he told you to do. He didn't say stand here looking at the clouds every day. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He said, that's discipleship. That's what we're called to do. And so he said, I'm I'm leaving you here in this world. And you say, but I don't like this world. I don't like the culture that we live in. I don't like the things people do. I don't like the way people treat each other. I would rather be in heaven. And Jesus said, I know you would, and one day you will be, but right now I'm leaving you here to be my body in this world. So stay in the world. That means we don't escape to the desert to live in seclusion. Before Barbara and I got married, I was a Cal Baptist, and as a part of a Free People, a group that was singing around, we were we were a, 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 you know trying to get new new people to come to the school, young people, and um, so we'd go to churches and in schools and 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 share, and and then. We would spend a lot of time together in our van, um, and there were I think nine of us all together, and we knew each other pretty well after a year. And we used to we used to, for the fun of it, we would think about what we would do after we got out of college, and and so somewhere along the way, this idea cropped up. Well, we could just go out and have our own our own compound. We'd have a couple of preachers. We'd have a lot of musicians. We would have we would have. People that could cook, we would have all the things that we would need and we could just live there among ourselves. You know what? There's no place in the world that Jesus ever said we should do that. He didn't say that to any Christians. He didn't say, go find a little island and live on it all by yourself and try to stay away from the world. He didn't say stay away from the world. He said, stay in the world. He said, I'm leaving you here in the world. Because you're no good as a disciple, you're no good as an evangelist if you're never around people who aren't saved. How are they ever going to hear? How are they going to know? So he said, go to work, raise your family, you know, join the PTA, be in Little League, all those kinds of things where people are that are unsaved. You know, go to whatever old people do. I don't know, but someday I might find out. But go find out what they do and go to those places. Because you've got to tell people about Jesus. Because he's the number one issue in your life. And so you go and you share those things. So you are in the world. So we live and we work and we do business with customers and we interact with our friends and, and, we, and we live alongside our neighbors who aren't saved right here in the real world where Jesus left us for now. And we do it without allowing, allowing the world to influence us with its values and influences. That's the kicker. He said, I want you to be in the world, but I don't want you to be of the world. I don't want you to be like the world. He said, you let me be your influencer. You let my word direct you and guide you. You don't let Hollywood, you don't let TikTok, you don't let all those other things be your influencer. You let me be your influencer. But you stay here in the world. Because we have to realize most people, including Christians, most people's values and priorities are in fact shaped by the culture that they live in. And we live in a world that has a lot of doors open to influence us. And almost all of them are negative. And so we need to be very careful about that. In fact, it even goes by generations. Those who came of age in the 50s, look at them and look at those who came of age in the 60s. Very different mindsets and different groups of people. And then the same thing for the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. Uh, people who come of age in different decades tend to think differently because of the culture that they were brought up in and the way that they were raised. But both groups, Paul says, he would say to them in Romans 12 too, he said, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you do what? The way you think. How you think determines who you will be. And so if you, let, if you let some influencer from Hollywood or from sports or from business or wherever it may be, if you let them be the number one priority in your life and you will start thinking like them. But if you keep Jesus as the number one priority in your life, you're going to think like him. It doesn't matter what's going on around you then. You're still in the culture, but you're not buying into the culture. And so we are able to be the people he calls us to be. And he says something similar to these Christians in Corinth. Look at verses twenty-nine through thirty-two. He says, But let me say this, dear brothers and sisters, the time that remains is very short. So from now on, those whose wives should not those with wives should not focus only on their marriage. Those who weep. Or who rejoice, or who buy things, should not be absorbed by their weeping, or by their joy, or by their joy, or their possessions. Those who have the things of this wor- of the world should not become attached to them, for this world, as we know it, will soon pass away. I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. So pay attention to how you think. Pay attention to who's telling you how to think, who's influencing you what to think about. So there are three questions that every one of us needs to ask all the time. It's not good enough just to ask them one time and think you have an answer. You're going to have to face these questions and the answers all the time. The questions are these. First question, how can I live effectively in this world without allowing the possessions of this world to own me? You ever found yourself being owned by what you thought you owned? Happens all the time. Happens to Christians all the time. Well, I have to polish that. I have to wax that. I have to keep people from touching that. I can't let my kids touch it. I can't do it. We, we're owned by a lot of the stuff that we think we own. So you got to figure out, how am I going to live an effective Christian life, how am I going to be a great disciple for Jesus Christ and not know how to deal with my possessions? I can't let my possessions own me. Why? Because they're not going to be around for a long time. I could tell the dumb old joke about the guy who died and asked for the permission to bring a suitcase to heaven. And he shows up with with a suitcase and and he's filled it with gold because he didn't want to leave his gold behind got to heaven and the angels opened the suitcase up and said, I know that God lets you bring one thing, but why did you bring pavement? <laughs> the stuff here is not going to compare to what we get in heaven. And you're not going to take any of it with you. So, how do I live as an effective believer? As an effective disciple? Without allowing my possessions to own me? second question how can I live in this world without allowing the culture of this world to define me culture wants to tell us how to think whether it's whether it's politics whether it's it's the the, the economist whether it is whether it is the people in Hollywood they want to tell us how to think How can I be that effective disciple without allowing culture to define me? Because it will. It will define me. It will define you if we allow it to. And then thirdly, how can I be in this world but never of this world? Every day when you get up, you need to be thinking about those questions. Are my possessions owning me today? Is culture trying to define me today? Am I allowing it to do that? Am I trying to live in the world or am I just advocating and being of the world? I'm just going to live like my neighbors do because then they'll like me or I'll be accepted. And it comes down always to this delicate balancing act that we have to deal with. We, we, live, we need to live each day to the fullest, but we need to fully understand that this day isn't all there is. So God, how do I give you this day and live it to the fullest that you want me to live it to, but I know that this day, however it ends, is not the end of everything. This isn't all that there is, what I do today or what I don't do today. And then we live this day to the fullest, but we don't have to live for this day. I've got to get this done because if I don't, everything's going to fall apart. I can just trust this day to Jesus Christ. And then we live in this world, but we don't live for this world. Not today and not any day. And anything this world has to offer that might stand in the way of our full devotion to Jesus Christ we keep at our distance, whether it's our emotions, whether it's our possessions, whether it's our relationships, whether it's our plans for the future. We keep all of the world has to offer it at a distance so that we can keep our ears and our eyes focused on Jesus Christ. We let him be our guiding star. We let him be in charge. After Paul gives these instructions, he offers this explanation. In verse 35, I am saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. He said, I'm just trying to help you be the best disciple you can be. I'm wanting you to serve Jesus with your whole heart, with your whole soul, and with all of your mind. I don't want you to deal with distractions. And so it gives us practical, bottom line, no-nonsense, big-picture approach to discipleship to us. And it boils down to one statement. Do whatever will help you serve the Lord best do whatever will help you serve the Lord best there in verse 35. The first step, of course, is begin with contentment. God, whatever situation you have me in, I can be content in that. I can serve you because I'm content in you. And before you try to change anything, first you need to be willing to remain where you are and bloom where you're planted. And then... It means, as a second step, you change whatever circumstances that need to change that you can change and eliminate any distractions that you can eliminate to serving Jesus Christ. And then the third step is to remember that in whatever way the world may change around you, don't let the world make its change within you. Don't give in to what the world is trying to give. Instead, remember, focus on doing whatever will help you serve the Lord the best. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the the admonitions that we have from the Apostle Paul here, as difficult as they are to try to wrap our heads around. We are so accustomed and attuned, Father, to listening to the news, to listening to the radio, to the television, to Hollywood, to Washington, D.C., to Sacramento, or to Phoenix, wherever that might be, for how we should think and how we should live. Forgive us for not looking to Jesus and looking to his word. Father, today is my prayer that not only for me, but for all of us, that we would make Jesus our number one priority in life. Being disciples, followers of him. Being on mission for him. Living for him and not for this world. Father, there may be some who are Christians here today who are still living for the world. They're owned by their possessions, perhaps. They're, they're, they're not sure what they're supposed to believe unless they hear it from somebody who's an influencer on the internet. Father, we pray that today they would make that choice to say, I'm going to listen to Jesus, that he's going to be my influencer. There may be some who've never trusted Jesus to be Savior and Lord at all. And the only thing they know is what they hear, what they're told they should believe, how they're told they ought to be how they're told life should be. And at the end, they know it ends in nothing because none of this stuff lasts. It all just goes away. We pray that today they would know that Jesus Christ is the one who loved them. He is God who came into the world. And he is God who went to the cross and took all of their sins on himself. And through his blood paid the price for their sins. And he offers forgiveness. And he offers eternal life if they will simply repent. Confess and turn toward him. Father, we pray that today would be that day they would say yes to Jesus. And the salvation that he offers. And that they would make Jesus Lord of their lives that they would make him the number one priority in their life, knowing that one day we will be with him in heaven because that's his promise to his children. And, Father, you keep every promise you make. You never lie. So, Father, we pray today would be their day of salvation. Now, Father, speak to each of our hearts and lives as we make some choices right now. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. If God's speaking to your heart today and you want to share that with me or if you need to come and and talk to somebody about how to become a Christian, whatever it may be, you come and we'll be glad to speak with you. Thank you for joining us today for Faith Point. Reach us online at firstsouthernpv.org or stop by to worship with us if you are in the Prescott Valley area. May God richly bless you today as you allow your faith to intersect with your life.